starting to think you like it here i'm starting to think you like after school detention you're always here you're always doing things to get sent here if you didn't like it you wouldn't be doing things to keep getting sent here maybe it's just that you like learning hey i'm with you i like learning too so if that's the case you don't have to keep doing things to get here just show up just show up to after school detention let's learn without clearing karma but since you've got some karma to clear let's do that too all right Welcome to After School Detention on Open Lines Radio. Today, we are going to be listening to a lecture by Dorothea Lasky. And she gave this at um, Harvard University. It is a, a lecture on poetry and the metaphysical eye. And the reason I really wanted to um, play this lecture for you today is because I think it's important. What she's going to talk about is how is, is the separation of the eye on the page it's it's not necessarily the author separating the eye of the author from the eye on the page from your written the written eye and i think it's really important to as we go through life to be able to distinguish the eye that is us and the eye that is written on paper and you can explore so much you can you can live out so many fantasies and do and go so many places and do all the things you wanted to do by manipulating the eye on the page and that's great and do it separate yourself separate the author from the eye immerse yourself in your writing and that's what we're going to hear and i'm going to read this to you this is you can go to youtube and find this um if you just type in uh, poetry and the metaphysical eye and uh you'll find it um listen to this intro 
Dorothea Lasky explores the subject of poetry and the metaphysical eye in a wide range of poetries from Ovid to Frank O'Hara, from Eileen Miles to Nicki Minaj. Her talk was sponsored by the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry, which offers poets the opportunity to explore in depth their own thinking on the subject of poetry and poetics, and to create lasting works of criticism and poetics that will help current practitioners in the art of poetry, along with scholars and general readers more fully understand poetry as written and read in our time. Co-sponsored by the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry and the Woodbury Poetry Room at Harvard University. This was given on October 10th, 2013 at the Emerson Chapel, Harvard Divinity School. All right, so go check that out or listen to it right here. Just listen to it right here and you'll get all you need to know. Make your life poetry. Your life is a work of art. All right, Dorothea Lasky. It starts with the quotation from Nietzsche, every name in history is I. The metaphysical eye. I am here to speak to you today about the metaphysical eye in poetry. I define this eye as a wild lyric eye, one that has no center and has no way to predict where it will go. An eye in a poem that is a shapeshifter, a persona that uses unexpected language and imagery, that is inconsistent, frightening, funny, and beyond the idea of a singular self. I started thinking about this kind of eye because I think that oftentimes a contemporary reader of a poem will conflate the eye of a poem with the eye of a poet, despite that we have been taught in school not to do so. This always frustrates me because when we reason out genre distinctions clearly, the eye of a poem is always a kind of performer. As readers, we know that the greatest distance possible is between the eye and its author in a work of fiction, and that the closest relationship between the eye and its author is in a work of nonfiction. There is often moral obligation that the eye of a nonfiction piece be 100% truthful. This can have even legal ramifications. Take, for instance, the famous story of James Frey. Is it James Frey or James Fry? I guess, is he here to correct us? We don't know. Um, <clears throat> and that's a little bit of my point. He first tried to publish his 2009 book, A Million Little Pieces, as a work of fiction. But when it didn't sell, he tried his hand at publishing it as a memoir. This worked, and he instantly became a national favorite with an Oprah backing and enormous sales. But with this spotlight of fame thrust upon his book, people started researching the stories within it and found out that some of it was not entirely the truth. When he finally had to admit that the eye of his piece had some distance from the eye of himself as a person, he was banished and shunned. Everyone thought he had done something morally wrong. Oprah took away her crown from his book and his publishers dropped him. He was done for. The lesson of this, of course, that a nonfiction eye better be exactly the same person as the author, or else. The distance between the persona of a poem and the eye of a poet is a tricky relationship and not as simple as a nonfiction eye. Should the eye be the poet? Should it not be the poet? Poets always have had to make this hard call, knowing that even when we make an eye so clearly not ourselves, someone will assume this eye is us anyway. Or if they know us as live persons, will put their idea of us on our poor little eye. An eye in a poem with no bodily form to buffer it, just trying to make its own way. 
The best gift that a poet can give his or her eye is to bestow that it be its own cool animal, an eye that is a wild thing, a mercurial trickster that resists all definition, that is so close to a self, a, a self or the self, and so far away from it at the same time that the reader can't help but see a real self in it. But that is a self who makes so many contradictions, who manipulates the reader and his or her expectations to such a degree that the reader is left both full and empty after having encountered it. Lorca, in his essay on the aesthetic of Duende, discussed how when a piece of written art is good or real, it has soul, and that a soul is a kind of demon, that a piece of art is authentic when the demonic is at play in it, when it has gone to the other world and brought a spirit back to inhabit it, and so that when you are experiencing a piece of art with Duende in it, you will have delight and disgust when you encounter the demonic, and that without a little demon, a poem is not a poem. It makes sense, after all, without a demon, how else to make the top of your head blow right off? There is a sense in Lorca's idea of the Duende that a poem's persona is infinitely strong to handle this demon, that the demon becomes a live alphabet, an actual freakish live wire that the eye of a poem must encounter, control, manipulate, beautify, handle, you know, just deal with. This I, not the demon, but what has to control the demon of the duende is what I'm concerned with. I am concerned with, in considering the metaphysical I, the part of the demon that has to know itself and control itself, that is so much the puffed up essence of personal, it can harness all fragmented senses of self and use them whenever it needs to, to go beyond it. In Alice Notley's essay, The Poetics of Disobedience, she writes of an eye that has been stripped down to its essence, full of strength, that is bare and fearful, but that has a supernatural power. And this was written in 1998, so she writes, in a book that will soon be published, Mysteries of Small Houses, I was firstly trying to realize the first person singular as fully and nakedly as possible, saying I in such a way as to make myself really nervous, really blowing away the gauze and making myself too scared of life and death to care what anyone thought of me or what I was going to say. I guess I, and she later says, I guess I partly wrote mysteries in order to stand this eye better. I came to the conclusion in the final poem of the book that self means I and also means poverty. It's what one strips down to, who you are when you've stripped down. Like Notley's idea of the eye, a metaphysical eye is who you are when you've stripped down. It is an essence of self that can not only conquer its own demon, it can overwhelm the devil himself. Really, I mean to distinguish today that the metaphysical eye is like what we think of as duende, and it also isn't. And what differentiates the metaphysical eye from duende is very important, is the crux of everything important about a poem. The eye full of mojo, the eye full of swagger. I know from a rather superficial study of hoodoo mysticism about something called John the Conqueror root. It is said that when one adorns himself or herself with this root, an insurmountable mojo is bestowed upon him or her. That when you wear it, 
No one can truly overcome the nasty musk of your ineffable power. The power of the root is steeped in the story of a folk hero, an African prince, John the Conqueror. After being sold in America into slavery, he had such clever wit and strength of spirit that he evaded not only his earthly masters on several occasions, but the devil himself. The story goes that John the Conqueror fell in love with the devil's youngest daughter when visiting West Hell, the hottest, most terrible region of hell. The devil's daughter fell quickly in love with him, and she gave him a magical axe to get them both out of hell. They also stole her father's horses, mad and lust drunk and ready to elope. Nothing could have angered the devil more than having both his baby girl and his horses stolen, so the devil chased John the Conqueror all over West Hell, hoping to kill him. John, in order to elude his demonic pursuer, shapeshifted many times into demons and animals and object and weather, and in a bout of incomparable swagger, passed out ice water to all of the poor souls trapped in the heat of hell. It is also said that to this day, hell is slightly cooler than it used to be because of this ice water. I wouldn't know that. In an epic battle, John the Conqueror won over his pursuer by tearing off the devil's own arm and beating him with it, stealing his daughter away as the ultimate prize. When a poem contains a metaphysical eye, it not only contains the demonic, but a shapeshifter that can handle this demon. It subverts the reader's expectations of it every step of the way and can never be conquered because at each grasp, the eye turns into a different thing and a new sort of handle upon it must be made. The reader must make a set of mental shifts to master this eye. But when an eye of a poem is metaphysical, the reader can't ever truly master it. It has been said that if one encounters a bear in the forest, all he or she has to do is say the words, John the Conqueror, and the bear will run away in sheer terror. A metaphysical eye in a poem cannot be conquered, but like all incredibly strong things, is gorgeous to watch change and flit in the light of our reading. It is most gorgeous because of its strength to not just be an overwhelmingly strong self, it is most gorgeous to have the courage to not even pretend to be a self at all. Some poems that contain the metaphysical eye as a way to define it. Now I will share with you some poems that I think exemplify key components of the metaphysical eye as a way to better explain what I mean. Although I will not mention work by all these poets, I think that poets who write <coughs> poems with the metaphysical eye include Ovid, Catullus, Horace Marshall, Walt Whitman, Frank O'Hara, Sylvia Plath, Eileen Miles, Bernadette Mayer, Notorious B.I.G., James Tate, Nicki Minaj, Kanye West, and Anne Sexton. Most of these poets I mentioned come from ancient Rome and from America, starting around the middle of the last century until the present. Some of my fusion of these two places and time periods to define the metaphysical eye has to do with my own aesthetics and background in poetry. My earliest relationships to actual poems with a shapeshifter eye were the ancient Roman poets because these are the first poets I read or, most so, or more so had read to me. When I was in fifth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Jane Hanlon, read us Ovid's Metamorphoses, a book from 8 AD, every day over lunch. These weird and wonderful stories cut into my soul and made me be a poet. 
I had been writing poems for a few years before fifth grade, but these lunchtime readings, as they say, seal the deal. A key component of the persona of the metamorphoses is that it is a complete shapeshifter. It is part of a tradition of Hellenistic metamorphosis poetry, but Ovid reinvented the form by organizing myths around themes and clumping stories together to tell one cohesive story. The book itself is a series poem with each myth culminating in the start of a new one. For example, as the story of Io ends with her turned into a cow by the jealousy of Juno, the next myth starts with her as a way to introduce a friend of her son, the son of the sun. She is the central figure in her own myth, but acts as an ancillary figure in the next in order to move the entire book forward. Another myth tells the story of two winged boys who join the Argonauts, only for the next myth to begin with just the entire group of the Argonauts, enveloping these two boy, boys into a whole set of people, again moving the book forward as a never-ending narrative hydra. In this way, the persona of the Metamorphoses book poem is never one being but a constantly shifting perspective, morphing and metamorphosizing into the next monster or thing, a constant eye with which Ovid can overlay the feelings, dreams, and fear of each new being, an eye that has to control the demon, the entire story itself, a story of what it means to be human. In their shape-shifterness, poems with a metaphysical eye play with their relationship to their reader in a way that is manipulative. They do so in a way that we oftentimes refer to as postmodern. Although this volleying relationship has happened long before the postmodern age, which is an age I don't believe in, in case you were wondering, I believe that all works created since modernism began are just modernists and will continue to be so for a long time. Nevertheless, poems with a metaphysical eye are postmodern in that they take away a fourth wall, a veil of safe performative distance between the persona and the reader. They make evident that the persona of the poem sees you. They may act at times as if they seemingly don't realize you are peering over their shoulder, but at some point they let you know they know. All of this they do through a through an ever-changing display of human emotions, through an eye that takes on a never-ending stream of costumes to make beautiful the many moods and their hot and awful divinity, to conflate both hate and love. Catullus, a Roman poet, is another poet who uses the metaphysical eye. He fills his poems with both hate and love. Take, for example, this poem. Hi there, girl, with a nose by no means tiny, non-dark eyes and two most undainty ankles, not long fingers and undry lips, besides a tongue that's far from overly refined. You bankrupt from Formai's mistress. Does the province spread the word that you're attractive? Do men pick on you to compare my lesbia with now? Oh, this tasteless age, ill-bred and witless. Here, Catullus dresses down a poor, big-nosed girl, telling her she has a bad case of the cankles, seemingly just for the sake of it. It is unclear if this is a revenge poem to this girl for a possible rejection, or if his purpose all along was to write a love poem for his beloved lesbia, who I will discuss in a moment. 
As we see with the above poem, if Catullus doesn't like someone, it is with a lethal and eye-stringed method with which he lets them know, as he writes to another person. If public judgment, Cominius, should ensue that your hoary old age, soiled by impure habits, was cut short, I personally don't doubt but that some greedy vulture would first be fed your severed tongue, and then your eyes would be pecked out and eaten by a black throat crow, your guts scoffed by dogs, the rest by wolves. Catullus has so much mojo, so much swagger, that he can destroy a person with his words. He has insurmountable power to feel as he wants and as strongly as he wants. Catullus's lesbian, or Clodia, as she was known as a woman in real life, is the focal point of many of his poems, particularly his love poetry. Although in his 116 surviving songs, he goes from telling her there are not enough kisses he can give to her, to the fact that she's an awful slut. Still the kisses win out as he writes, let's live my lesbian, let's love, and let us esteem the gossip of old men as equal to one penny. Suns can set and rise, but after that brief light goes out, there is the one unending night to get through. Give me a thousand kisses, then a hundred, then a thousand more, a second hundred, then another thousand, then a hundred. Then when we've had our thousands, the numbers will be confused, and we will surely lose count, so that no evil eye can look upon us to know the final sum of all our kisses. Catullus's swagger comes from the golden quality of his blackened tongue. No boundary can stop his passion. When he loves someone like Lesbia, no amount of kisses can ever be enough. He has an almost supernatural passion where the people looking on, the potential evil eyes, can ever even begin to count the love he has for Lesbia. And as we see when he hates someone, his words can hurt the person. He is able to use his poetry to hate and love and to make this hate and love happen simultaneously. Catullus's metaphysical eye is able to hate and love simultaneously with immense mojo. As he writes, I hate and love. You wonder perhaps why I do that? I have no idea. I just feel it. I am tortured. It is the openness and bluster with which his persona exalts the beauty of human feeling, both good and bad, that creates the metaphysical eye in his poems. After all, to hate and love is to be alive, and showing a live persona is what a metaphysical eye can and will do and will do well. My favorite part of the Bible is from the book of Revelations in which Christ advises a passionate relationship to God that is both full of hate and love. And as he says, because you are neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, I shall vomit you out of my mouth. God doesn't want you if all you feel is lukewarm for him. A metaphysical eye is both hot and cold, most of the time hot and cold at the same time, but is never lukewarm. What is the point in being lukewarm? Neither God nor your reader will have you. Following along my own aesthetic sensibilities and blinders, I have always thought that American poets of the mid to the end of the 21st century contain the metaphysical eye. A classic poem that contains the metaphysical eye is Eileen Miles' an American poem, which I'll share parts, of you, parts with you right now. So the first part I'm going to share is she 
writes, I was born in Boston in 1949. I never wanted this fact to be known. In fact, I've spent the better half of my adult life trying to sweep my early years under the carpet and have a life that was clearly just mine and independent of the historic fate of my family. Can you imagine what it was like to be one of them, to be built like them, to talk like them, to have the benefits of being born into such a wealthy and powerful American family? I went to the best schools, had all kinds of tutors and trainers, traveled widely, met the famous, the controversial, and the not so admirable. And I knew from a very early age that if there were ever any possibility of escaping the collective fate of this famous Boston family, I would take that route and I have. And later she writes, I am beginning to think there is no escaping history. A woman I am currently having an affair with said, you know, you look like a Kennedy. I felt the blood rising in my cheeks. People have always laughed at my Boston accent, confusing large for lodge, party for potty. But when this unsuspecting woman invoked for the first time my family name, I knew the gig was up. Yes, I am. I am a Kennedy. My attempts to remain obscure have not served me well. Starting as a humble poet, I quickly climbed to the top of my profession, assuming a position of leadership and honor. And then later she writes, I am a Kennedy. Shouldn't we all be Kennedys? This nation's greatest city is home of the businessman and home of the rich artists, people with beautiful teeth who are not on the streets. What shall we do about this dilemma? Listen, I have been educated. I have learned about Western civilization. Do you know what the message of Western civilization is? I am alone. Am I alone tonight? I don't think so. So I might ask you now, how many people know Eileen Miles' work? I guess we all know. And of these people who do not know it, who believe that Eileen Miles was a Kennedy? Always when I'm teaching this poem, there'll be a few students that will say, oh, I thought she was when they hear that poem. So some of you may have raised your hands, not in this crowd. I mean, we are at Harvard after all, so I think we knew. But some of you may have raised your hands. Um, if you don't know anything about her or her work, it's a fair assessment. After all, she states in her poem that she is one, or more so her persona does. Still her shapeshifter eye is at work here. We believe her eye is a Kennedy because of the feeling and fanfare she brings to this identity. The self of the poem, however false, becomes universal as it feels and expresses these human feelings, both a hatred and a love simultaneously. Those of us who know who Miles actually is, a female gay poet from a lower middle class suburb of Boston, can start to see her posture of a Kennedy in the poem tinged with complexity. Why would a poet like her state through her metaphysical eye that she is one, if not to speak from this socioeconomic male gendered place of authority? After all, we listened to her poem closely as we thought she might actually be a Kennedy. We listen from this flash of ostentation, this overwhelming power position. There was magic in her mojo, so she put the magic in her eye. Once we realized her eye wasn't simply a powerful Kennedy, but a powerful trickster, we began to ask ourselves, who is this metaphysical eye that she speaks both with and from? How can it take on the costume of a Kennedy so effortlessly? Effortlessly. I have problems with less words, but that's 
another story. So Bernadette Mayer is another poet who employs a metaphysical eye in her poems. Her eye is always shape-shifting, and we are never clear who or what it is. In her poem, Sonnet, she writes, you jerk, you didn't call me up. I haven't seen you in so long. You probably have a fucking tan. And besides that, instead of making love tonight, you're drinking your parents to the airport. I'm through with you bourgeoisie boys. All you ever do is go back to ancestral comforts only money can get. Even Catullus was rich. But nowadays you guys settle for a couch by a sophorific color cable TV set instead of any arc of love. No wonder the G.I. Joe team blows it every other time. Wake up. It's the middle of the night. You can either make love or die at the hands of the Cobra commander. And then she has in the poem, if you've um, read her reader, she has to make love, turn to page 121, to die, turn to page 172. So in the poem, she turns the rejection over the guy not calling her up, his unfortunate fate to be immortalized in a great poem for being a dud, which should teach all of you duds into an attack on his gendered and socioeconomic privilege until she becomes a mystic eye, bestowing sex or death or both upon her readers, depending on what page of her book they choose to read. And this mystic eye does this in a magical book. She makes the book magical with this eye. For what may be lost when a reader reads this poem other than in her revered, the Bernadette Mayer reader, is that page 121 reveals a poem about sex, but there is no page 172. So that the reader who chooses death must imagine a page that does not exist in a supernatural imaginative space that only Mayer's eye has the power to create. Another classic metaphysical eye poem is Ted Berrigan's Red Shift. And as it goes, here I am, 8.08 PM, indefinable, ample, rhythmic frame. The air is biting, February, fierce arabesques, on the way to tree and winter tr streetscape. I drink some American poison liquid air which bubbles and smoke to have character and to lean in. The streets look for Alan, Frank, or me. Alan is a movie, Frank disappearing in the air. It's heavy with that lightness, heavy on me. I heave through it, them, as the Calvados is being sipped on Long Island now, 20 years almost ago, and the man smoking is looking at the smilingly attentive woman and telling, who would have thought that I'd be here? Nothing wrapped up, nothing buried, everything, love, children, hundreds of them, money, marriage, ethics, a politics of grace, up in the air, swirling, burning even, or still, now more than ever before. Not that practically a boy, serious in corduroy car coat, eyes penetrating the winter twilight at 6th and Bowery in 1961. Not that pretty girl, 19, who was going to have to go, careening into middle age so, to burn and to burn more fiercely than even she could imagine so to go. Not that painter who from very first meeting I would never and never will leave alone until we both vanish into the thin air we signed up for and so demanded to breathe and who will never leave me, not for sex nor politics nor even for stupid permanent estrangement which is only our human lot and means nothing. No, not him. There's a song California dreaming but no, I won't do that. 
I am 43. When will I die? I will never die. I will live to be 110, and I will never go away. And you will never escape from me, who am always and only a ghost despite this frame, spirit who lives only to nag. I am only pronouns, and I am all of them, and I didn't ask for this, you did. I came into your life to change it, and it did so, and now nothing will ever change. That, and that's that. Alone and crowded, unhappy fate. Nevertheless, I slip softly into the air. The world's furious song flows through my costume. The poem starts placid enough. We are placed in a New York scene with the persona of the poem looking at it and placing himself within it. But by the end of the poem, the persona has come back from another dimension, on the ready after being called back by the reader. After all, I didn't ask for this, you did, into being not just pronouns, but all of them. By the end of the poem, the body itself is just a costume the metaphysical eye must wear as the world's furious song flows through it so violently. I have always found American hip-hop from the late 20th century into the present to contain the metaphysical eye and surplus. The eye in a hip-hop song shifts, subverts, and manipulates listeners' expectations. It has a great bravado. It is an eye that must control the demon of the duende. Kanye West's song Power exemplifies this as he writes, I'm living in that 21st century doing something mean to it, doing it better than anybody you ever seen do it. Screams from the haters, got a nice ring to it. I guess every superhero need his theme music. No one man should have all that power. The clock's ticking, I just count the hours. West's eye tells everyone confidently that he is the best poet of all, alive, that he, a superhero, can make beautiful music, his theme music, from even the screams from the haters. That his eye is so strong it can take what might break another persona and make it his strength. His metaphysical eye conquers all who oppose it through poetry and wins the ultimate prize of power by having a persona's power. One of my favorite hip-hop poets, Notorious B.I.G., or Biggie as we lovingly know him, embodies the metaphysical eye. A listener can never pin down his eye with its overwhelming arrogance and simultaneous vulnerability and the sheer power of his hate and love of his reader-listener. One of his best songs is the song Juicy from his 1994 album Ready to Die, which he begins with the classic metaphysical eye line, Fuck all you hoes, get a grip, motherfucker. In the song, he goes on to tell a rags-to-riches story to bestow hope upon the listener in the power of poetry, of changing one's life circumstance, and in particular, his own unparalleled skills as a poet, that it's all about believing in one's own power. And as he sings, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine, Hanging pictures on my wall, ever, every Saturday rap attack, Mr. Magic Marley Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop, smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight because I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade. 
Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner. Peace to Ranji, Brucey B, Kid Capri, Funkmaster Flex, Lovebug, Starsky. I'm blowing up like you thought I would. Call the crib, same number, same hood. It's all good. And if you don't know, now you know. Hear Biggie's eyes what we are talking about. It's in the limelight because it rhymes tight. Poetry not only has the power to change his real circumstance from poverty to riches, but Biggie's genius as a poet makes him both the best poet and rich. And much like Miles or Mayer, Biggie infuses mojo into his eye not only to empower it, but to empower his readers to change their own circumstances. Even the choral refrain of the songs seems to bestow mojo upon its listener. You know very well who you are. Don't let them hold you down. Reach for the stars. You had a goal, but not that many, because you're the only one. I'll give you good and plenty. Biggie's metaphysical eye eludes its listener through its bravado in an ultimate act of kindness, a kind of positive charge for eyes like it who might otherwise be silenced, to infuse these eyes with their own power, a kind of selfless, elusive quality that so many poems with the metaphysical eye employ. The bees. In my process of uncovering the metaphysical eye in poetry, I have found a weird thread in the form of bees. In many poems that have a metaphysical eye, there is the prevalence of bee imagery and the symbol of a poet and the process of writing poetry twin together. The Roman poet Horace from uh, 65 to 8 BC in his poem to Iulius Antonius famously refers to his work as a poet to that of a bee. And as he writes, I create my verses in the manner of a humble matinean bee that goes gathering pollen from all the pleasant time and labors among the many groves on the banks of flowing Tiber. Telling the poet he addresses in this particular poem that this poet's plight is to celebrate Caesar, whereas Horace's work as a poet is to exalt, O lovely son, O worthy to be praised. A seemingly more inconsequential type of work, the poet's work to worship the lovely son, but one that actually is the work of a seer, an otherworldly master, a metaphysical eye that steadily worships the divine and the natural world, that conquers the universe. In Finnish folklore, there is a story of Lemminkainen, I'm sorry that I've butchered that. I'll just call him Lemon, who went and he goes to the North Country to try and get the hand of the fairest maiden in the land. An old cow herd, who he offended with his plight, kills him by the river and cuts his body into eight pieces and throws this in the river. And his mother, you know, goes and finds the body pieces and fishes them out with a magic rake and puts the pieces back together again, only to make a speechless doll of a man. Knowing that she needed to give her son voice again, she called on the bees to help him and bring him honey. But all that we know of how hard bees work, her bees really have to work very hard in this story. For his sad mother, these bees travel to Metzola's fair meadows to get a special honey, but then this honey does not help him speak. So these bees have to travel again, this time across nine lakes to an island to bring back an even more special and powerful honey, but still this second kind of honey does not help her son. 
So on a third journey, these bees go past the stars into the creator's realm and bring back a honey that ends up curing her son, who speaks and becomes alive again. The bee holds the magic honey that makes the voice of a poet, that can make an eye speak. And for this reason, the metaphysical eye in poem not only becomes the powerful bee, they, it respects the work ethic of the bee, and in many cases tries to emulate it. The metaphysical eye becomes humble at the magic of the bee and then takes the magic into its poems. Timothy Donnelly in a new poem called Traveler, which I believe was in this issue of the Harvard Review, so particularly local, writes of the process of bees honey making and the humility and possible futility of being a worker bee and also a poet. And as he writes in this long poem, you sat beside me on the green chair bird-like fidgeting in your girlhood as we read together from a magazine facts about the lives of honeybees, nothing to be afraid of to generate, on average, a single pound of honey. A colony has to draw nectar from two million flowers or enough red roses to send a dozen red roses to every resident of Columbia, Missouri. And to visit all those flowers, the colony has to fly collectively 50,000 miles over one-fifth the distance from the earth to the moon, which holds our thoughts in place if we have nowhere else to place them. As when we read the average worker bee in all its lifetime will only produce one-twelfth a teaspoon of honey, meaning that I have stirred the life work of a dozen bees into my teacup thoughtlessly, <laughs> a devourer of life works, this present only one example, I turn my head away. Here in Donnelly's poem, the eye sympathizes with the bee who, like the poet, must fly as a colony over 50,000 miles to make one-twelfth a teaspoon of honey. The bee who, like the poet, works for a very long time to make something powerful, magical, and comparatively tiny to all its effort. There are so many bees in poems with the metaphysical eye when you start looking for them. And I have found that once you start looking, you can't stop. They almost start swarming at you. For Sappho, a metaphysical eye poet, only a fragment remains in her work that mentions the bee, but she conflates it with her persona as she writes, neither for me nor the honey bee. Emily Dickinson has lots of bee poems. Take, for example, her short poem, Fame is a Bee. Fame is a bee, it has a song, it has a sting, ah, too, it has a wing. For Dickinson, fame and power and mojo is something the metaphysical eye can have, and it can sing and sting and fly. In a collection of his prose, Whitman writes in a section called Specimen Days of bumblebees with, with a similar sort of respect, as he writes of the May month, month of swarming, singing, mating birds, the bumblebee month, month of the flowering lilac, and then my own birth month. And he writes of sensual overload of nature and living, and because he is a poet, he feels to record this overload with his characteristic and large undulating detail, as he writes of the bluebirds, grassbirds, and robins, in every direction the croaking of the pond frogs and the first white of the dogwood blossoms, now the golden dandelions in endless profusion spotting the ground everywhere, the white cherry and pear blows, the wild violets. But it is the bees that capture his poet heart with metaphysical kinship, as he writes of the bees conveying me to a new and pronounced sense of strength, beauty, vitality, and movement. 
And he writes of these wild bees whose loud and steady humming makes an undertone to the whole and to my mood and the hour. For Whitman, it is the hum of the bees that make them like the poet with the gift of musical composition of song. They are overwhelmingly strong, beautiful, and vital with immense mojo. They have magic in their song, creating a symphony with their loud and steady humming, with their overwhelming power, which overtakes a wild garden in spring. Even in their incessant undertone, they overtake everything. The hip-hop singer Nicki Minaj uses the symbol of a bee to address her work as a poet to other poets as she writes in Bees in the Trap, a play on the word bee and being. Bitches ain't shit and they ain't saying nothing. A hundred motherfuckers can't tell me nothing. I bees in the trap, bee bees in the trap. I bees in the trap, bee bees in the trap and then goes on to infuse her metaphysical eye with classic bravado and mojo in the first verse of her song. And as she sings, man, I been did that, man, I been popped off, and if she ain't trying to give it up, she get dropped off. Let me bust that Yui, bitch, bust that open. Might spend a couple thou just to bust that open. Rip it off, no joking, like your name Hulk Hogan. Comparing herself through her eye to the great wrestler, Hulk Hogan, infusing her eye with sheer power and strength, an eye full of money, who might spend a couple thou just to bust that open, mojo and muscle, as she writes, rip it off, no joking, like your name, Hulk Hogan. Sylvia Plath writes poems of, full of the metaphysical eye. In her final book, she summoned many bees. Some of this is due to her actual biography. Her father was a beekeeper. However, like Horace and Nicki Minaj and other poets of the metaphysical eye, she uses bees as a kind of battle cry. In the arrival of the bee box, she describes the confinement of being a bee, of being a poet, a thing being been in this lifetime, in a box that by the end of the poem is only temporary. As she writes, I ordered this clean wood box, square as a chair, and almost too heavy to lift. I would say it was the coffin of a midget or a square baby, were there not such a din in it. The box is locked, it is dangerous. I have to live with it overnight, and I can't keep away from it. There are no windows, so I can't see what is in there. There is only a little grid, no exit. And her desire to give these little bees, these poets, these dangerous poets, her eyes a voice, much like Biggie did. How can I let them out? It is the noise that appalls me most of all, the unintelligible syllables. It is like a Roman mob, small, taken one by one, but my God together. I lay my ear to furious Latin. I am not a Caesar. I have simply ordered a box of maniacs. They can be sent back. They can die. I must feed them nothing. I am the owner. And in her poem, Stings, Plath summons the queen bee, and her metaphysical eye becomes her. And as she writes, barehanded I hand the combs, the man in white smiles. Barehanded are cheesecloth gauntlets, neat and sweet. The throats of our wrists, brave lilies, he and I, have a thousand clean cells between us. Eight combs of yellow teacups, and the hive itself a teacup, white with pink flowers on it. With excessive love, I enameled it. And later she wonders in the poem, is there any queen at all in it? If she is there, she is old. Her wings torn shawls, her long body, body rubbed of its plush, poor and bare and unqueenly and even shameful. I stand in a column.
of winged, unmiraculous women, honey dredgers. I am no drudge, though for years I have eaten dust and dried plates with my dense hair, and seen my strangeness evaporate, blue dew from dangerous skin. Will they hate me, these women who scurry, whose news is the open cherry, the open clover? It is almost over. I am in control. Here is my honey machine. It will work without thinking, opening in spring like an industrious virgin. And in the poem, Plast's metaphysical eye has become the queen bee, takes on her power, and goes beyond the women who only scurry, whose news is the open cherry, the open clover, and becomes the horrific thing later in the poem, the shapeshifter bee monster who with unearthly bravado speaks for more than herself, who has summoned the demon of the duende, trapped it like the devil's horses, and rode into the town square of the poem, smiling a face full of brightly colored ribbons. To conclude, all of these bees and poets and eyes are important to me, because as a poet, I want to write poems that hate and love their reader simultaneously, that are more than Lorca's demon, but are the harness of otherworldly dread, human heat, that empower a reader to overcome the devil too through beautiful language. This is, I think, one of the main answers to the common question, how is poetry relevant to our society today? It is relevant because it is a way to amalgamate dark and vibrant human emotion and permit its expression to and for and through everyone. And maybe this lecture today is this album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I'd never amount to nothing, because I have been a little silent thing too. I write my own poems out of necessity, summoning as much bravado as I can. And maybe I do this because when I started writing poetry, my eye was a tiny eye that I had to blow John the Conqueror root upon to become big. Because we all start small, one cell, one poem, one word, one utterance into the dark. The point of it all is to go beyond that beginning, to become something else, whatever that poem may be. And maybe the I in my own poems is still very small, but I promise you that when I'm gone, my I is going to be as big as this whole room. And if you are a poet listening or reading this, here's my battle cry for you to be big too. As Plass says, the bees are flying, they taste the spring. Thank you very much. Thank you.